a statement to reflect upon, there is suffering. Suffering is like this. And so then from there, the causes of suffering, the end of suffering, and the way to live in the human realm, in samsara, by not creating suffering about the inevitable changes that we experience in our lives. So at the in old age, you, you know, you have a lot of memories and you look back at and, uh, the past and uh, the opportunity I've had in this life has been absolutely marvelous to encounter Buddhism and then Theravada and then uh, a great teacher like Lumpacha in Thailand and uh, so I feel this enormous gratitude what we call in Pali gratitude to have this opportunity in this life to have the encouragement like you're all supporters of this monastery you're encouraging the, the monks the lay people living here to really take advantage of the situation of practicing according to Buddhist directions so the Four Noble Truths are directional signs and most religions that we understand as religion are are doctrinal positions you have to believe in the Bible, in God, in Allah, or you know, they have different ways of, of forming belief systems. And uh, doubt is, as I was, I was brought up as a Christian, doubt was a sin. Where in Theravada Buddhism, doubt is actually to be understood. Why, what, what is the origin, the cause of doubt in our lives? Because there is so much to doubt about the future. There is so much that we might regret about our past. And, uh, and yet the present moment is like this. In the present moment, there's, there's no doubt. But doubt arises when we think about the future, what's going to happen uh, in the future. Uh, what happens when you die, then we speculate about afterlife or uh, you know there's views or opinions uh, generated and about uh, there's oblivion or there's heaven and hell or there's rebirth or reincarnation but right now death for all of us is in the future you know it's a perception we have in the present and uh, and therefore it's in the future and the future is is uncertain, unknown. And when we attach to doubt and worry about the future, then we that's the cause of suffering. We're creating suffering around possibilities of failure or loss, disease, old age and death. Uh, even while we're young we can live in a in a realm of of fear and anxiety about what's going to happen in the future. And the political theme here in the United States is very much, you know, what's going to happen in the future. And then they're kind of with climate change and political strife. So when we attach to these perceptions, then we suffer. And that cause of suffering is not the perception itself with the blind attachment, the obsessions of grasping these worries, these doubts, these fears. And so we can, you know, we take to drugs or drink or uh, various ways of distracting ourselves from the, the present moment because we don't value the present moment as it really is. We see it as the future is is, uh, you know, very important to us. The present moment doesn't seem like anything. It's just a, a passing experience that, that changes according to time of day and other conditions. So in, 
the cause of suffering is this ignorance of uh, samsara, not really understanding what we're, uh, this life as a human form on a planet in the universe, you know, we have various views about it, scientific views about what was the origin of the universe, and we have various intellectual theories, and um, we believe in time as our reality, so we we operate from perceptions that we're conditioned by when we're innocent children. So the first abduction that we all have to enlightenment, to understanding, is is um, what is called uh, the ego, satyaditi, the sense of complete identity with the physical form, one's own body. And so this, of course, is is uh, is an obstruction because it's a condition we require. It's not just the natural condition. It's uh, you know we when a newborn infant, the newborn infant, it doesn't have an ego. It's fully conscious human form, but it doesn't have memory or worry about the future. It's completely in the present, here and now, fully conscious. And at this moment, each one of us has this same conscious simplicity that we tend to ignore because we live for the future or as you get older, at my age, you, you have so many memories of the past, you form, uh, you know, like even being a Buddhist monk, you have form opinions about how monasteries should be, or what is a good monk or a bad monk, and, and what is right and wrong. So even the, the forms, unless they're understood with wisdom, tend to bind us to you know, the old age is easy to think that, that uh, the, the present generation is is crazy. And, so, and everything's changed from when I was a child, when I was young. And, uh, and I can see the conditioning of, of a mind formed in the 1930s, 40s, that uh, that that, you know, is, is the kind of basic to how you tend to make value judgments and perceive experience in the present moment. So, and in the, the so ego is, is a complete identification with the physical body, not with the pure consciousness of an infant, but with the, it doesn't identify, it, you know, it's conditioned to identify with the, the body, that whether it's a boy or a girl, and uh, what you know, nationality, whether it's a good, a good boy or a bad boy or whatever, <clears throat> we acquire these, these perceptions of good and bad, right and wrong, after we're born, according to cultural conditioning, religious conditioning. So the world in its, in its problems is, you know, everybody's operating from this basic delusion of a strong personal identity, which was, based, which was given to them after they were born. Wherein the escape from suffering is beginning to recognize your pure nature, this conscious awareness, you know, what you are, what we all are is not a physical form, a male or female or anything else, but this pure conscious, universal consciousness that we uh, begin to trust and use in our daily life. So in uh, monastic life, you know, Lung Pao Chao was, was very direct in his teaching because uh, Theravada Buddhism can be very doctrinal and uh, 
you know, what's right and wrong and good and bad and on and on like this, and you form strong views uh, uh, from the conditioning of a religion. But uh, Buddha's wisdom was to establish a, a form such as the, what we call the Vinaya about action and speech. But Dhamma is our real refuge. When we take refuge, we take refuge in Dhamma. And so, what is Dhamma? You know, and for those of you who are born in Buddhist families, Buddhist societies, uh, Dhamma is a part of the language. That you, your cultural conditioning is based on in belief in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. But in, uh, for many of us who were born in the West, in the Western world, or a non-Buddhist family, uh, where, you know, we, we see, we use the word Dhamma, but then we take refuge in Dhamma. So one of the forms that we use is, uh, you know, the traditional ceremonial forms of uh, Buddha Dhamma Sangha is, is a natural kind of conditioning for Thais or Sri Lankans, Cambodians, and because that's part of their culture. But for mo most of us who haven't that kind of cultural conditioning, Dhamma is another abstract word that we tend to believe in, so we take refuge in Dhamma. But what do we really mean by taking refuge in Dhamma as a reality of here and now? And so in, in the thing that is really uh, impressive about Buddha's Dhamma is it's investigation. It's to investigate, to find out for yourself. It's not about just accepting what you've been told but really, you know, finding out this Dhamma Vichaya is one of the factors of enlightenment in which we investigate. And the first obstruction is the ego, this, this identity with the form. So, and then you can see in modern life, in the Western world, especially this strong identity with the form, with form with position, with belief, which tend to cause conflict with others who don't believe in the same thing we do. So we, you know, we have endless strife in, in a country like the United States where on a political scene where, you know, we find it difficult to, to find a common agreement in terms of right and wrong or what should be done or shouldn't be done because we're caught in the momentum of the conditioning factor we acquired as we were in it, which we acquired when we were quite innocent. Like an innocent child, innocent means that it, it just it takes whatever it's given. You know, whatever your mother and father believe, your religion teaches you, your, your culture, your nationality, uh, all your views and opinions are acquired information that you weren't born with. And so that can be varied on people from different class levels, from working class, from middle class and so forth, have different views about themselves. And, and uh, you know, the class conflict, racial conflict, gender conflict are all based on this this grasping of perceptions that are not based on wisdom, but are merely conditions acquired later after when we're innocent children. So the Buddhist teaching is pointing to wisdom. It's a wisdom teaching. Because wisdom is available to every single one of us. It's not like something you acquire through studying philosophy in a university. It's not something that that I have more of than you. You know, we, we tend to see, oh, that person is wise, that person isn't wise. But when we begin to really investigate 
the Dhamma, the reality of here and now, apparent here and now, then we begin to see what we share. All sentient beings, all conditioned phenomena shares this common uh, manifestations in consciousness rather than separate consciousnesses each uh, kind of confined to their own uh, personal personality views or cultural attitudes. So in, uh, in, now in the second noble truth, the cause of suffering is this ignorance, this attachment to desire. So it's uh, the cause uh, Sakyaditi, or the ego, basically is just a simple, complete identification with what you look like, your physical form. And, uh, and of course, there's so much emphasis on appearance. Modern society gives so much value, uh, value to youth and good looks and, and complexion and, and all the rest, and because we this is what who, what we think we are is a physical form. So we tend to form views about what is what is beauty, what is ugly, what is uh, you know what we like or don't like, and uh, you know this is part of the, the cultural conditioning. But we start investigating this. Am I really? Am I really this physical body? And of course, old age, I'm 88 years old now, so am I really this 88-year-old body? You know, so, and in the life I've lived, I've had the opportunity to reflect on this as, as the years pass by, birthdays are celebrated, you know, you, and uh, you, you know, you see yourself as an, as an old monk, as an old man, 88 years old, octogenarian, and uh, these are perceptions that we bind ourselves to. And then that, that obsession, continual grasping, ignorant grasping of these perceptions leads to something. Because the personality the personalities we have, the ego, was, was uh, formed very much when we were young. So in, in old age, your, your body grows old, but you don't feel old. You know, and so you're, you're, you find it very confusing because the body has, has increasing limitations, and, uh, but mentally you still, like when we're on this tour of uh, Newfoundland, uh, you know, I kept seeing these hills that the other monks and they, they people were climbing and uh, my mind, you know, wanted to climb too, but the body wouldn't allow that to happen. So there's a, there's a frustration there that if I just attach to, you know, the view that I'm an old man and I can't walk very well and, and then you form a negative view about old age and um, you kind of envy or resent youth and so old age is, has, you know, without wisdom is suffering. But in terms of the reality of here now, it's not suffering. It's just the way it is. Bodies are like this. 88 years ago. 88 years now is like this. Am I really this old body? And, uh, and this is a question to ask yourself. You know, so we ask ourselves questions. What am I if I'm not the physical body that I've been conditioned to to believe that I am? And so this who am I question is not about to find some perception of what you are. 
is not about forming a, a better perception of yourself or some kind of Buddhist perception that you've read about or you hear from various teachers, but you begin to point to the neurosis, the end of suffering, is this when we let go of what we've learned, let go of the identity with the body, let go of the, the cultural conditioning, the social conditioning, the religious conditioning. Let go of all, it doesn't mean we get rid of it. It's not about annihilation, but we see the, the ignorant attachment to these desires to sensual desire, desire for sensual pleasure. Easy to understand. We all want to have good health, youth, good looks, good food, beauty, love, friendships, success. And then we all dread as, as individual persons, people, that um, we aren't going to get them, that they're going to change. That what we we love is going to be separated from us on our good fortune, and we can lose. And we can see our our beloved friends get old and die. We can, you know, we experience this sense of loss and taken personally as suffering, but taken with wisdom. It's seen as the way things are because ultimately the unity that lies in conscious awareness doesn't die, isn't something that is born and dies. So we call this the deathless. The path to the deathless is very much a, a teaching in the Dhammapada. The path to the deathless is awareness, mindfulness, is the path to the deathless. So just this simple teaching of the Buddha of awareness, mindfulness, is the gate to that reality, the ultimate reality, the absolute reality of deathless, reality of Dhamma, of consciousness, that we begin to recognize, realize for ourselves is no longer a belief, no longer just being a good Buddhist or saying the right things or quoting from the scriptures, but it's actually what we call insight, insight, understanding. So in terms of the forms that we identify with, they're all imperfect. So we, you know, and yet we long for perfection. We long for love, you know, unconditioned love. And, uh, and then we try to find it in demanding it from somebody else or situations. And, and it always ends up being disappointing. Because when we expect uh, permanent loving relationships, then that it is, uh, you know, a perception that is not based on wisdom, but on just habit patterns of clinging and grasping and wanting something that you don't have. But I think it's very important to realize that, that the Buddha pointed to our true nature, when we take refuge in Dhamma, is deathless, the deathless Dhamma. And what doesn't die? So in daily life, we, we, we investigate this in the, through all the changing conditions of physical aging and sickness and, and um, through the changing, you know, the, the coming and going of friends and the rising of situations and disappointments and various forms of despair and depression, we take the position of the witness and so this is a very clever suggestion uh, 
Bhutto in the Lumpacha's emphasis on this mantra Bhutto, which is the Buddha's name, because it is the witness to the present moment is like this. Now notice that the statement it's like this is not a value judgment. At this moment, it can only be this way in terms of what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think and feel. It's whatever you're thinking, whatever you're uh, feeling emotionally, whatever you're seeing is, is the way it is. It's like this is merely a skillful use of the English language to, to point to the here and now. The reality of Dhamma here and now, because Dhamma is here and now. It's not something you get in the future through years of meditation practice and, and asceticism. Apparent here and now, when we talk of when we do the morning evening chanting, we, we say, Santipiko Dhamma, or translated, that's the Pali word, translated in images apparent here and now. So what is that? What is apparent here and now? Is it what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think, what we're feeling? These are all subject to change. Other conditions that will change the mood, the feeling, the memory, uh, what we see, hear, smell, and so forth. These are subject to changing conditions because they are conditions themselves. They're not what we really are. But when we let go, when we see that the suffering we we create in our lives through clinging to these perceptions, to concepts, to views and opinions, when we see that, that they're very that, that not that the views or opinions are right or wrong, but it's the blind clinging attachment that we bind ourselves to, to not using wisdom as our refuge. So the Buddhist teachings are wisdom teachings that are, you can't teach wisdom. There's no words for it. You know, it's not about memorizing wise sayings from great sages of the past. Wisdom is natural to us in these very mortal, vulnerable forms that we identify in. But through the teaching of the Buddha, through his various sutras, you know, it's, uh, it's always this to investigate, to see the unreality of forms, how dependent they are, and how changing and uncertain they can be. And so the wisdom teaching the Buddha used was all conditions are impermanent. Now that's not a belief. It's to be investigated. So you don't have to believe all conditions are permanent. It's a wisdom. It's wisdom pointing at the here and now. Find out what is permanent in this present moment. What is, wherever you are, whatever state you're in, mentally, physically, your health or whatever, what, what doesn't change, what isn't dependent on other conditions changing, is conscious awareness. So in the life in the, in the monastery is, you know, an opportunity to, to really dedicate yourself to that kind of investigation. So then I remember uh, in training at Watpapo, Lumpur Chow. You know, it was, uh, you know, I had to practice meditation in kind of formal methods before, in which you had, uh, you controlled the situations completely, like silence and, and not speaking. And this uh, Mahasi Sayadaw method was the, my first method of meditation where you everything in slow motion and I remember uh, thinking that's real meditation. When I went to live with Lung Cha, it was daily life. 
So in daily life we had to, you know, we had to uh, go on arms round, we had to uh, learn to make roads, we were always busy doing things. And I remember feeling, this isn't, you know, I can't meditate here. So, so I went to Rinpoche and I told him I can't meditate here. And he says to another monk, Sumedha, at least he can't meditate. <laughs> <laughs> and they start laughing at me. And then I asked leave to take, to go off by myself after my first panta. Rinpoche let me go off to this, uh, in the Sukhumna Corn province in the northeast, this, uh, High peak, the highest peak in that range of mountains, called Pupek. and I idolized this, this, uh, this kind of going off into the forest and and really getting down to serious business. So I, uh, Ajahn Chah was very clever dealing with his first foreign monk. He wouldn't let a Thai monk get away with that. <laughs> That uh, he let me go, and he he took, even took me to the train station, and <laughs> with a group of monks, and they waved goodbye to me, <laughs> and uh, he said, "Come back for the panta." So, so I went to this Pupek mountain with two uh, other monks, and. Uh, I was really, you know, this is, this was a, it was very, it was an old uh, Cambodian uh, relic of a, probably a palace of some sort of a shrine on top of this mountain. And it was very high up, you had to bend about, you had to go on arms around. You couldn't, you couldn't, didn't have time to go into villages, but you, you had to wait at the, the base of this mountain for the villagers to come. So every day I climbed down this mountain, climbed back up, and, and spent the rest of the day in the, week, the months where we just leave each other alone. But one of the monks wanted me to teach him English, and that's the last thing I wanted to do. <laughs> so. So I felt I developed uh, an obsessive aversion to this one month and uh, just trying to, you know, meditate uh, according to my ideas of meditation with this constant reference to this monk I had to go on altar with every day, every morning and eat with was, uh, you know, it became totally obsessed with aversion and I, I didn't have any peace of mind and no samadhi or concentration. And then that terrible tornado passed by and blew the kitchen tutti off the, off the hill, <laughs> nearly blew my tutti off the hill. And then I caught malaria and uh, the village man had to come and rescue me, take me down to the base of the mountain where there was a shelter. So I, I uh, was very feverish and weak and lying under this shelter, which was a tin, uh, a tin roof shelter, which wasn't very high. It was a hot season, and so you're laying there, feeling sorry for yourself, thinking you're going to die. And there's no medicine or anything. And the villagers finally managed to get a doctor to come in on horseback. And uh, I remember laying there thinking, I've wasted my life. I'm going to die here in the jungles of Southeast Asia. <laughs> and I have no way of even notifying my mother and father. <laughs> and, and then they had all these little insects, flying insects gnats and mosquitoes that kept flying into your eyes or if you open your mouth and fly in your mouth and and it was absolute torture and and as I lay there feeling sorry for myself I suddenly realized what I was doing I suddenly thought 
But you know, the stupidity of me just giving time for myself and worrying about dying. So I had this impulse to sit up and meditate. So that, you know, within a week I was, I was able to climb back up Pukik Mountain. But after six months of living in an ideal, what I thought was an ideal situation, I gladly returned to Wapapo. <laughs> and was so glad to see Lumpur Char. And I didn't mind the work anymore. <laughs> and so it was, this is how you learn, you know, when you, you learn from feeling sorry for yourself, from your own, uh, you know, seemingly aversion to somebody, um, in, you know, in monastic life. You, you have to, you don't choose who you particularly want to live with, you take what you get. And so as a layman, I was quite fussy about who I associated with. And, uh, you know, I just, well, and then in monastic life, I've just had to live with whoever happened to be around. <laughs> and then the cultural differences between an American and a Northeast Thai. That was, you know, trying, uh, you know, trying to understand a, a culture, uh, a way of life that was very, uh, you know, is a, uh, is a grand society, is rice-growing culture. And Buddhism was very much integrated into its uh, cultural biases and attitudes. So, I, you know, and then in America, you have a totally different cultural conditioning where, you know, you see yourself as very important and, you know, it's my right, my view, my opinion, you should respect me, and, and on and on like that. And, and that's not a part of that culture, of Thai culture. So it was a, like a mirror for me and my own American uh, social programming and values. And I did, you know, one thing, I did feel tremendous kind of uh, respect for Ajahn Chah and a, and, a, and a kind of natural sense of trust because he was truly a wise human being. And um, so I could, you know, I trusted him that he would direct me in a, in a very useful, wise way. So I did give myself to be his his disciple, quite willingly, it wasn't demanded. And then, uh, you know, then you project onto the teacher all kinds of qualities, you know, you, you create an illusion of this guru, this, this great enlightened master. And then when you live with somebody, you, they don't always act enlightened. And, and so you began to create doubt in your mind. So, in, uh, and Dumpachal was always getting me to po pointing to, to get to see my own projections onto him. And so one, after several years there, you know, I had a lot of insight into the Four Noble Truths. And so I went to Ajahn Chah and I asked him, I said, Am I a pre-mentor? And he looked at me and he says, how should I know? <laughs> so this is kind of making me look at myself. I'm the one that, is, that knows what's going on. And yet the projection of the wise master was that he knows me better than I do. And so just those kind of teachings where you're directed back to your own awareness that, you know, how you project onto senior members of society, you men or women, or that these are conditioned perceptions that we tend to bind ourselves to. And we don't know what we're doing. So that's why 
the world is the way it is. Why there's war in Ukraine and on and on like this, and this conflicts in Gaza and Israel and, and political strife in the United States. And because people are operating from the conditioning they've acquired, not from wisdom, from understanding Dhamma. So Dhamma is the word that now is no longer just a ceremony that I, you know, I can give three refuges to you and and uh, in Pali language and translate into English or Thai and, and that um, the word is, you know, translates into English as ultimate reality, absolute reality. But what do we mean by that? That's, those are very abstract perceptions. What is the Dhamma that's here and now? What is it? It can't be separate from any of it. It's not something you acquire. It's not up high, you know, way above your head that you have to reach for. But it's this awakened awareness that we began to realize for ourselves, Dhamma, apparent here and now. And just through this kind of reflection, you began to to uh, trust that, take your stand in awareness, not in value judgments of right and wrong, good or bad. Where does everything cease? In the present moment, where does all thought cease, all emotions, when they arise, where do they cease? And it's in conscious awareness. So in monastic life, the emphasis uh, that, that we have on is patient endurance. Not just grind your, uh, your teeth and, and just bear with life, but awareness, patient awareness of the presence and absence of thoughts, of emotion, of perception. And that changes your whole view from this limited, limited identity with your body and your conditioning to your ultimate identity, which is perfect. So many of us were brought up in religions that teach you you're born imperfect in sin. So one thing I found in in the Western mind, you know, we tend to see ourselves as imperfect. And uh, so there's an endless effort to try to improve ourselves, try to get a more loving personality or a better appearance or this sense of self-improvement and trying to, uh, you know, try to respect ourselves. You know, my rights are so important to me and what I think, I have a right to think and say whatever and kind of freedom of speech. And, uh, I, and I am what I am and you shouldn't judge me. All these kind of egotistical statements are part of a culture based on the individual as our reality. So in just investigating terms like democracy, and uh, the United States was established on that kind of idea, that principle, very high-minded ideal of democracy. And, uh, and it is a high ideal. But is it really the way things are? You know, is, is, is equality and democracy, is that the way things are in reality, in daily life? And then we begin to, and we begin to see that, uh, you know, all conditions are impermanent. There's nothing equal about conditions because they're constantly changing. And that, that is wisdom to realize a natural state of condition phenomena, the earth, fire, water, and air elements are all the, the, what we identify with, the water, 
there's fire and nature are the four elements that we we hold to and want to stabilize and identify with. But what is aware of these four elements is conscious awareness. You're aware of the body is like this, or seeing is like this, or hearing is like this. What you the eyes can can you can lose your sight, you can become deaf and all like that. So the 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 sense organs of the body are very subject to change. To other conditions. And so when we identify with good vision and good hearing and and sharp senses and good education and high and you know we having high status and success and and youthful appearance and physical beauty these are all subject to change and so there's fear about it you know fear the future is something to fear because it's not you know, it can change for the better, but it's not going to get better and better if things are subject to birth and death. The result of being born is old age. And so that's the way it is. And just by this constant reference and taking your position in this awareness is what you really are. You're not pretending anymore. You're not trying to pretend you're perfect as a person, but you're beginning to realize what you really are is this awareness, conscious awareness of Dhamma. Absolute reality is here and now. It's timeless. And then come and see for yourself. So I offer this as a reflection.